Welcome to the Buckhead Church Podcast. At Buckhead Church, we are for Atlanta because we believe that God is for Atlanta. And these days, it's more important than ever to be known by what we're for. And we hope this podcast helps you in your life and faith. We want to help you find greater hope with fewer regrets because we are for you. If it's your first time with us, head over to buckheadchurch.org slash new so we can meet you and send you a free For Atlanta gift on us. If you're not already receiving weekly emails from us, make sure to head to our website, scroll to the bottom, click stay informed and sign up today. The best way to keep up with everything going on is to follow us on social media, subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free Buckhead Church app. But most importantly, I hope the following episode inspires you to take the next step forward in your faith journey this week. Enjoy. Well, last week, um, we kicked off a brand new series. um, And by the nature of the content, I'm really glad that you all came back. So uh, thanks for coming back uh, for part two of our series, Intimate Encounters. We talked about the fact that in a a hypersexualized culture, um, it, it sort of distorted our idea of true intimacy that true intimacy uh, is not um, equated with sex. And we talked about this a lot last week. If you weren't here, um, we we know this intuitively. Intimacy um, isn't the same as sex. We know lots of people have uh, sex that's not intimate and people are in intimate relationships that that aren't sexualized. And and so we know that's not a reality. And if you weren't here last week, I don't have time to go through all the things we talked about. You're gonna wanna go back and check it out. Um, We talked from a, a scientific and a clinical perspective about how this has an impact in our lives. But um, if, if you weren't here, the bottom line of the message last week was this. It's sort of, this is what Paul said. He said, you should run. Like, this is a dangerous thing. And you're like, from sexuality. And Paul's like, yes, there, there's no other uh, sin. There's no other, and, and sin's just a, an archery term for missing the mark. There's no other area of your life where if you miss the mark, if you make a mistake, if you treat it in such a way that, that is less than responsible, there's no other, other sin that affects your body more, more clearly than, than sexual sin does. And, and again, we saw this from a, from a medical perspective. And it's so interesting, at the height of the sexual liberation in our society and in our world, in the Western world, rates of depression and anxiety, uh, and those who struggle, we're gonna talk about this a lot today, with secure attachment. Those who, who struggle with secure attachment are at all-time heights. Over the last half a century, we've seen um, uh, people with the ability for sec- secure attachment drop dramatically. In fact, neurobiologically, we know that, that sort of the, the unrestrained sexual expression in our society, it's eroded our ability for, for secure attachment and deep human connection for true intimacy, as we've said. So this, this is something that's really important. It's something we've got to talk about. And Paul offered a solution last week. If you're not just going to abstain from sexuality, it, it, the reality is, is um, you need to do it in the context of marriage. In fact, um, he said that it, that it requires exclusivity, that, that marriage uh, provides a, a secure environment where we feel uh, where, where when you're exclusive in a relationship, it provides the right context for you to experience the intimacy, the true intimacy that's possible. And we know that multiple relationships 
uh, erode this potential for secure attachment. Marriage, by the way, um, it apparently uh, has the potential to solve other issues as well. In fact, there's a story that's told of an ancient rabbi who was having a conversation uh, with a man. He was actually approached uh, with a question of one of life's biggest questions, most significant questions. And a man approached him and he said, "Um, I I have this strong desire to live forever. And the rabbi replied, then you should get married. And the man said, well, then I'll live forever. And and the rabbi said, no, but the desire will disappear. (laughs) Slow burn. Some of you get that a little bit later. Uh, I would never say that, by the way, uh, to my wife. Uh, I'm not a rabbi. I just, I just quote rabbis sometimes. Uh, sadly, our view of marriage has eroded to something that's less than what God intended. And, and in some ways, like, I don't say this uh, tongue-in-cheek, like, it's, it's become a joke to some, like, like this is the, the solution. But, but the Apostle Paul said, look, because there's so much sexual immorality... And, and, and if you don't believe there's so much, just, just look around. Just open your eyes. Because there's so, so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. This is the right context. This is the safest context for you to, to handle sexual expression and experience the true intimacy that it has the potential to lead you toward. Now, we stopped there last week um, because I felt like that was all we could handle last week. But Paul went further. And, and if, if you thought last week was a lot, now's the time to buckle your seatbelt because he goes on and this is what he says. And he, he says, so in that relationship, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's sexual needs. The wife um, gives, keep going, the wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the, bu- the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Even the guy that's pressing the buttons thought, are you really sure you want to go there? Like, this is, this is like, you're like, is that in the Bible? This is why you should have your Bible with you, by the way, so you can confirm that. Because I can put anything on this screen, by the way. But this is actually in there. And here's, here's something I want you to know. Like, like, this makes some of us nervous, like, especially in our context today. And, and here's why. It's because misapplication and misuse and an abuse of this idea that's taught in the context of traditional marriage it has become an easy target. It's made marriage an easy target. And, 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 and it's something that, that we're, we're tempted to throw out and go, well, that's old and you, you can't trust people to do that these days. But here's the thing. This actually, these verses actually point to the section, second essential component for intimacy, and, and this is critical. What, what, this, what this says, that I'm gonna, uh, this, this idea of giving, your, the giving authority of your body to somebody, this says, I'm choosing to give you all access to me to serve your needs. I'm choosing to give all of me to you for, your, for, for the best of your life and, and for your highest benefit. Now, this involves a, a second component that's critical to intimacy. This involves incredible vulnerability. Think about it. But vulnerability actually promotes intimacy. And vulnerability promotes intimacy not accidentally, but by design. Now, some of you aren't going to be surprised by this, but to fully understand this, we actually have to go back to the beginning again. And some of you are going, we can't do a series without going back to Genesis. And it's because I haven't yet graduated from Genesis. And so we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 2. If you have a Bible, I would love for you to open it to the very, very beginning. If you don't have one, I've said this so many times, I want you to have a Bible. I, I want, if, if, if you don't have one, you can't afford one, we'd love to give one to you. But Genesis chapter 2, um, we have the story of the creation of man and, and, and the first relationship 
between man and woman. And, and it began here. The, the Lord God said that it's not good for the man to be alone. Some of you may remember this. And so he says, I'm, I'm gonna make a helper who is just right for him. That, that, that it's not good for a man to be alone. And it's interesting, the word he uses for man here is actually not the word for male. It's the word for mankind. So he's not just talking about this first human that was a man. He's talking about mankind. Now, this doesn't mean everybody needs to be married because he's gonna, he's gonna talk about a marriage relationship in a second. That's not the point. The point is, it's not good to try to do life alone. That's, that's the point. And so now... The Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. And, and he, he brought these animals to Adam um, to name the animals. Um, but for Adam, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now, this isn't the point of the message, but so I don't lose some of you here. I, I just want to uh, call a quick time out really fast. This word suitable helper has been misunderstood and taken out of context so many times. Do you know this word suitable helper? This doesn't mean like, Adam needed an assistant or he needed like, he needed like a Robin to his Batman. Like that, that's, not, that's not the idea here. Do you know this, this word in the Hebrew actually means, if we were to, to translate it um, literally, it would be help meet. And it's actually the same word that's used over and over in the Psalms for what God was to David. It was like this divine helper. God was to David, he was a helpmeet to David in the midst of his most formidable challenges and his most formidable adversaries. This, this isn't some dumbed down lesser than, this is like you need somebody powerful to come alongside you to do life with you. So look at this, the Lord God, he caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, which is an interesting way to start. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. Here's what's interesting to me. It's interesting to me that God made the man utterly vulnerable. And then a vital part of him was necessary. It was taken out of him. It was given to create the woman. And then God brought her. This word actually means that, that if you were to translate this, literally it would be like, and the woman came to the man and they entered into something. This, this Hebrew word, it was used oftentimes for when, when a covenant was made, when two people made promises together, they entered into a unique relationship and God brought her to the man and they entered into a unique relationship. And God forged the possibility for this deep, intimate relationship through vulnerability. The, the man, then he says this, he says, so this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. This is, this is hey, I, 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 I've taken something out of the man and now I'm, now I'm gonna reunite it and connect them back together. And this is why, this is why a man leaves his father and mother, which look, this is the reverse now the man's being taken out of a family. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united or reconnected or enters into this relationship with his wife and the two become one flesh. This is the ultimate expression of intimacy. It's oneness. 
That's what we were designed to experience. We were designed to be taken out of, of, of a certain context and enter into something with somebody else to forge something new in the type of intimate relationship that allows us to express what we truly desire to experience in this oneness of intimacy as the two became one flesh. And then it goes on. And, 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 and before we get to that, here's the thing. This is uh, maybe most important. We'll get to the board in a second. Most important um, a description of what we see in our world today. Uh, some of you are familiar in psychology with attachment theory. This is an ancient description of what we call today attachment. It's this, this healthy detachment from one thing and attaching to something else as, as they're being united to forge this new relationship. This is, this is known as attachment. The problem is that in our culture, all the cultural messages in our world are fixated not on attachment. They're fixated on attraction. We've talked about this before. The, the, the reality is, is we focus in our hypersexualized culture on attraction versus attachment. And somewhat it's because it's on the front end of the relationship. You were, you were created with the capacity to be attracted to someone. But you know, we actually know the science of attraction now. It's three chemicals in your body. It's dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine. And when the combination of these three things fire, you feel a sense of, of attraction to someone. The, the dopamine is a happiness chemical. The serotonin is a thrill chemical. Norepinephrine is, is a restlessness chemical. So you see someone or you experience someone and you're happy about it and it's thrilling because it's new and you're restless so you want more of it. But eventually, as you know, life happens. And we we're in seasons where we're not as happy. And the relationship's been going on a while and it's not that thrilling, exciting, new that, that we used to be experiencing. And the norepinephrine's still firing and so you get restless. And eventually you're not feeling it. And the relationship ends, but that's because attraction was never meant to hold you together. Attraction, while it's powerful and it's something that initiates relationships, it's not powerful enough to hold two people together. You were designed to attach to another person. And that comes through access, through access that's given um, wisely and freely and fully to you physically and mentally and emotionally. These are, are depths of intimacy. Even think about it in a, in a conversation. I mean, you, you can have a conversation that's about facts and then you can have a conversation that's about opinions. And then you have conversations that are about feelings. And as you give of yourself physically and mentally and emotionally, you forge deeper and deeper in intimacy because greater levels of access increases the potential for intimacy and oneness and attachment. Attachment theory basically is about this idea that humans have the capacity for deep enduring bonds. That, that there's these deep enduring bonds that connect two people and they're forged in, uh, in, in these relationships through access and we, we experience greater intimacy. But I need to go back to the scripture real quick because at the end of the, the creation story and this, this idea of the man and the woman and them becoming one and in, in their relationship, this is what they're designed for. The, the human relationship is described. The essence of the relationship is described. And I told you last week, I was gonna find true intimacy. Well, it actually comes straight out of the scriptures. This is the definition of true intimacy. We're told that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They were both naked and they felt no shame. 
fully accessible to one another. Nothing between them, nothing to hide. There's no withholding, no games, and no shame. They're fully known and fully accepted by each other. But then we know something went wrong. Sin entered the world, and it changed the nature of their relationship. Both of them did something they, they weren't proud of. They didn't want to mark them, but it did. We're told in Genesis chapter 3 that, that then their eyes, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. They didn't realize it before, but now they realize this. So they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. And then... They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The first thing they did after doing something they weren't proud of was that they covered up and they hid. We cover up and we hide. That's what we do when we experience shame. And the truth is, is the first man and woman did it and we've been doing it ever since. Not just with God, but with each other. I want you to think about it. Isn't this true? When there's something about you that's less than desirable or something you're not proud of, something that maybe you're ashamed of, you feel guilty of, the truth is, is you cover it up, you hide it, you hope other people don't know about it. In fact, in a a six-year study uh, done by author uh, Brene Brown, some of you have heard Brene Brown on human connection. Um, she's, a, she's a, a, a clinical social worker and a research professor at the University of Houston. She did this extensive study over six years, and she discovered that one thing more than anything else blocked the capacity for deep connection with another person, and that one single thing was shame. Now, her TED Talk, it's one of the highest viewed TED Talks of all time. On multiple platforms, it's now approaching 100 million views. And the reason it resonates so deeply is because it's one of the oldest truths about the human condition. I mean, it's right there in Genesis. I mean, they were naked and had no shame. And then once they did something that caused shame, they cover up and they hide. And covering up and hiding is our natural response to feelings of shame. This is what we do, isn't it? And here's the thing. Shame's also often associated with guilt, like you felt guilty about something, but it's, it's way worse. You need to know this. Guilt and shame are not the same thing. Guilt says, I did something wrong. Shame says, there's something wrong with me. It's personalized. It's this thing that I've done or this thing that was done to me, it's shaped my identity. And shame is primarily, she discovered, shame's primarily the fear of disconnection which is a fancy way of saying it makes us insecure. There's something about me, whether again, something I've done or something that's done to me. And others, if they knew, especially somebody that I might wanna be in a romantic relationship, if they knew this about me, it would make me unworthy of connection. It would make me less than desirable to them. A conservative um, study In fact, there's several studies, all of them, somewhere between 50 and 60% of people deal with insecure attachment. They they struggle with it in some way. So imagine, you know, there's 50 to 60% of people that deal with this 
and they get together with another person who likely is 50 60% likely to deal with it as well, that means that roughly four out of five relationships deal with insecurity that obstructs the ability for them to experience true intimacy because they, they resist vulnerability because of a fear of rejection. Now, this, this, this comes from somewhere. I want to talk just for a second why, our, why we resist vulnerability. The, the truth is, is um, vulnerability is, is not something that comes naturally to us. Now, some of us, it, it comes easier for some of us than others, but that's because of a relationship between two things. When it comes to vulnerability, um, there's sort of two things at play. There's the level at which you're known. So some of us are, are, feel like we're really known by people or, or we've, we've really been honest about who we really are. And as people have gotten to know us, we, we forge deeper relationships. And then there's, there's people with which we have a relationship where we're relatively unknown. And then there's people that, uh, whether they, they know us well or not, they, they've accepted us. And there's people in our lives who've rejected us. And, and secure attachment, by the way, and again, this is an oversimplification. So if you're a psychologist out there and you're going, oh my gosh, you're reducing it to a chart. Yes, but, but it's just for the sake of our conversation today. This is, it's more complicated than this, but the simple, in simplest form, the truth is, is if you're known and accepted, you become more confident with vulnerability. You're more confident in your relationships with other people. You're more confident being willing to let people know who you really are and, and, and being vulnerable and weak and honest about what's really going on in your life with people. And this creates a secure attachment style with other people because you have a low level of fear. If, uh, conversely, if, if you, you have a relationship with people and they're not, they're sort of surface and, you know, they, they've, they've, you know, they've rejected you in some way, that makes you hesitant you know, to, to, uh, to be vulnerable in, in certain relationships. But it's, it's not super damaging. It's not, that's definitely um, sort of overcomable. It's not always easy, but it's overcomable. Um, here's where the real problem comes, is people who've been known deeply and, and they've been rejected, vulnerability is something they avoid. Now, I just want to pause here for a second. If you're somebody who you grew up in a family where you weren't accepted, it didn't create that confidence in you. Maybe it was a broken family where one of your parents rejected you or, or you experienced some deep betrayal early in your life, maybe from a family member or a close friend or maybe in your formative years, in your teenage or, or young adult years. Or maybe you experienced a, 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 a really uh, hurtful divorce where you thought somebody was really committed to you, and then they rejected you either for someone else or just because they didn't want to be with you anymore. That creates an injury for you, just so you know. And, and here's the thing. You might be sitting here thinking, it's only me. No, no, no. It's 50 to 60% of people. It's, it's most of the people. It's at least more than half have experienced something in their life that causes them want to want to avoid the, the type of vulnerability that actually forges true intimacy, and then there's some of us, and, and, and the truth is, is, is both of these lead people oftentimes in life to, to live in a place in life where they resist, they resist they're resistant uh, towards vulnerability. And so they're okay with being unknown as long as they're accepted. See, this, this is the, the sort of the, the realm of security or secure attachment. And this represents 
insecure attachment in life. And most of us fall into, most of our relationships fall into the realm of insecure attachment or insecurity in our attachment. Now, this is why this is important because there's two specific keys. I wanna talk about two keys to vulnerability, two keys to creating this this sort of security in a relationship that we need because we have to have a solution to this. The first one is acceptance. Acceptance, um, as you know, it, it, it begins to overcome. Now, you're not gonna overcome some significant hurt in somebody's life just by initially accepting somebody. This takes a lot of work over time. And it, it involves you moving towards someone in, in a significant way because moving towards someone, you're asking this person to move towards you, but you moving towards them is important as well because when they move towards you, it, it, it sort of creates this loss of control. Anybody remember the seesaw? Nobody remembers the seesaw. This is participation sport. Okay, okay, there we go. How many of you like the seesaw, by the way? Yeah, like very few hands go up. Here, here's, a, here's the seesaw. Here's what we don't like about the seesaw is when somebody moves backwards. When you think about this, they move backwards. What happens? You go up in the air and you have a loss of control. And, and you're sort of in an insecure place. You're in a vulnerable place. And, and it's interesting because we often associate vulnerability um, with weakness. But here's the thing. Vulnerability involves uncertainty and risk and emotional exposure and, and the risk of rejection. Moving towards someone and becoming vulnerable, it actually is incredibly courageous. The, it takes someone, think about this. It takes incredible courage not only to face your past, to face your failures, to face our brokenness, much less share it out loud with someone else risking that they might reject us. The truth is, is it's easier. It's easier to avoid. It's easier to ignore. It's easier to cover up and hide. The problem is, is that's as damaging for you as it is for your relationship. Brene Brown says it this way. She says, you cannot selectively numb emotion. So the fear of, of being vulnerable, the, 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 the shame and guilt that comes with that, you can't selectively numb that emotion. When you numb your guilt and shame and fears, we also numb joy and gratitude and happiness. She, she goes on to say, if you were to, to put shame in a peach tree, pe- or petri dish, peach tree, that's where we are, petri dish, it needs three ingredients to grow exponentially. So if you were to put shame, the, the thing you're shameful of, in a, in a dish, three things make it grow. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. And this mostly is self-judgment, although it can be judgment of others. But if you put the same amount of shame in a Petri dish and douse it with empathy, it cannot survive. Empathy, as it turns out, is a form of acceptance that produces what psychologists refer to as psychological safety in a relationship. And and when you're empathetic towards someone, you say, hey, if that had happened to me, if I had done that or if I had gone through that experience, I would probably feel the same way. It normalizes somebody else's feelings and it rids them of their shame. This, this This is actually the key to to creating a security and relationship. 
So if, if you were to take this, this idea of secure attachment and, and you were to, to chart this out, um, so, so when, when it comes to our acceptance over time, you, you realize that, that this doesn't happen quickly. But in our acceptance and somebody being willing to, to be known to us, to show us who they fully are, to, to show us what's really going on, there, there's a, is an interesting relationship here. The curve looks like this. And so you may feel like in a relationship, like, hey, well, I've been here for a long time. And I've, I've really, I've, I've sort of shown that I'm, I'm going to accept them. And I, I've been consistent. And here's what, what happens is you've been consistent over a long period of time. But at some point, you're going to hit a point where they feel a sense of true security. This is, you, you could call this the, the security curve or vulnerability curve. That, that it takes a significant amount of acceptance over time to overcome these areas. People can actually move from, from these quadrants into a confident vulnerability in a relationship. But it takes, it takes a lot of work and a lot of time. As a matter of fact, my wife and I, we went through this and, and it was about the seven year, eight year mark in our marriage. And I literally confronted my wife at some point. I, I was frustrated and I finally said to her, I said, I said um, hey, I just feel like I can only get so close to you. I feel like you hold me at arm's length, This is what I said to her. And through a series of sessions with counselors, Jen was willing to risk and had the courage to share some things with me that I did not know some things about how she was feeling, some things about how some things in her past had caused her to feel in our relationship. And I had a decision to make because I'm going, hey, look, I've been here all along, but that's what it took just to get her to the place to where she could even have this conversation when I pushed. Do you know, um, it's not, it's not um, by coincidence that the average um, length of a marriage is seven years. The average length of divorce comes at about the seven-year mark. And I think it's because it takes a long time for people to overcome insecurities that have come from injuries in our past. And many, many people, four out of five relationships deal with this. 50 to 60% of people are resistant to vulnerability in relationships. And what that causes in a relationship is both parties to feel like, this isn't what I thought I was getting into this for. This isn't what I wanted to experience. But choosing acceptance over and over and over. And by the way, acceptance, this is what it says. It says, I see you as you really are. And I still want to be close to you. I, I see you. I, I know all the stuff that, that's happened in your life and, and all the stuff that's gone on. But I still want to be near you. I still want to be in relationship with you. Do you know, as humans, we, um, we gravitate toward um, environments of acceptance. This isn't just true of people in romantic relationships. This is true in friendships and true in work environments. It's true in parenting, by the way. You want your kids to move towards you, creating an environment, not of affirmation for everything they do, not approval of everything they do, but acceptance of them regardless of what they do. It's how you maintain relationship over the long haul through difficult things. We gravitate towards those types of relationships because increased acceptance, it fosters 
an increased level of vulnerability. I'm willing to share more things with you. I'm willing to go deeper in our relationship and in our conversations with you because I know you're not gonna reject me. Over time, you're proving this to me. Not only that, I'm choosing to be vulnerable in the midst of that. And this increases our intimacy and deep connection. And this is how we repair. This is remarkable. Think about this. God designed you with the capacity to help repair and heal an insecure attachment in another person. But this takes time, which, which leads to our second key. The, the second key is commitment. If, if there's not commitment in the relationship, if there's not a clarity of commitment or relationship, it erodes this, this potential for intimacy. As a matter of fact, this is the promise. Back to the, back to the, the, the seesaw for a minute. This is the promise that I'm not gonna jump off the seesaw when I have you up in the air. You know, that's the, that was all our greatest fear. It's why people hated the seesaw. It's like, well, I get stuck up in the air and, and I know that if I don't answer the right three questions that they're gonna jump off and I fall down and crash on the ground if you ever played that game. But, it, but that's the idea and it's no different in relationships. Clarity of commitment. The understanding that I'm not gonna jump off the seesaw is essential to relational security. I'm gonna press for a second. Again, I want you to like me, but I want you to trust me more, so I'm gonna tell you the truth. Look, at when your verbal and nonverbal cues don't align, you foster insecurity in a relationship. Example, and you don't like my examples, but here's an example. I'll spend the night with you, but I won't make Christmas plans with you yet. That creates tremendous insecurity in a relationship. I know I got, we got married, I committed to this, but I'm not so sure if I can continue on in this relationship, so I'm gonna introduce the D word into our relationship. A lack of clarity of commitment is manipulative. That's what it is. We're gonna be okay, I promise. We're gonna make it through this. But it's manipulative. It's leveraging the freedom to leave the relationship at any point to maintain control. That's what it does. That is non-vulnerable. It's, I'm not willing to be vulnerable because I need to stay in control. It ensures the other person acts in such a way that keeps you around or keeps you interested or makes you happy. But come on, think about this. Is that what you really want? That's not what you want in a relationship. I mean, you want someone to say and do the things that will keep you happy because you're afraid they'll leave? Or, or that you, you want them to do the things so, so, that they're, they're, so, that, so that you won't leave? I mean, don't you want someone that supports your hopes and dreams and serves your needs and takes interest in the things that you're interested in or gives, gives of themselves sacrificially because they enjoy delighting you? not because they're afraid you'll leave. I mean, that's what we all really want. That requires vulnerability. See, when you create an expectation like I'm never going to leave you and you mean it and you back it up over and over and over, it is limiting for you, that's true. But it's absolutely freeing for the person you're in relationship with. When you say there's nothing you can tell me, there's nothing you can say, the thing you're most shameful of. I, I'm gonna be here regardless. See, this is what marriage says. Many of us said these words. It says, I'm gonna give myself fully to you alone. 
not to anybody else. I'll keep myself only unto you for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. You can rest knowing I'm gonna be here forever through all of it, regardless of what I find out, regardless of what I know, regardless of what I experience or you do or what happens to you. I recently um, reconnected with a friend. His name's Derwood. He gave me permission to share the story. We were having breakfast and I haven't caught up with him in a while and um, since I moved back, this was the first time we got together and I knew he and his wife Judy had been through a difficult season. And um, they, uh, they had recently discovered she'd been diagnosed with um, Alzheimer's. And in around 2016, um, Derwood said he started noticing uh, that she would forget things. And it was things like that she would never forget in the past or things that she seemed to forget to know how to do and so he asked her about it a couple of times and she sort of dismissed it. And, and then it started to get worse and he started to realize like this was a pattern and there were some significant things that she was, she was missing. Went on for about two years. And he said in that time period, he decided to, to do some research and find out about it and find out what treatment's available and, and find out you know, how, to, how to diagnose it properly. And he got with a doctor and he was really careful to know that like, he, he didn't want her to feel less than or didn't, he didn't want her to feel like he was judging her and he didn't want to misdiagnose. And so he, he started to, to elicit a lot of outside help. And after about two years, he realized um, through some help of some doctors, like this is what's really going on uh, with her. And um, I said, so how did you, how did you, decide to talk with her about it. And, and how did that go? And he said, um, he said, I, I went to her one day and I, I just told her, I said, um, I said, hey, I need to talk to you about something really important. And she said, okay. He said, no, no, we need some time. Like we need some time to sit down. This is, I think, gonna be a long conversation for us. And, and so they set aside a time. And when they sat down, he said, hey, I need to talk to you about one of my greatest fears. And she said, okay. What's your grace? He said, this is, I'm more afraid of this than anything else in my life. And she said, really, what is it? And he said, I'm afraid that you're gonna stop loving me. She said, why would you say that? We're about to celebrate our 50th anniversary this year. I mean, why would you say you're afraid I'm gonna stop loving you? And he said, well, I've been noticing that you've been forgetting things. And I'm gonna, I'm sort of afraid that you're gonna forget that you love me. She said, yeah, I've been noticing I've been forgetting things too. What do you think that did for their relationship? I remember saying to Derwood, how did you come up with that? First, he couldn't speak. He just kind of pointed up. He said, you know what? I just had the sense that I had to make myself more vulnerable than her. She was in a really vulnerable place and I needed to make myself more vulnerable than her so that she would trust me. After 49 years, 
they had run into something where this was still true. That sort of vulnerability, it forges intimacy, the deepest kind of intimacy. When I asked him to share the story, he said, yeah, just make sure people know that I'm not, I'm not anybody extraordinary. She's my sweetheart. And I want to stay close to her as long as possibly, possibly we can, as close as I possibly can. Listen, what if you were willing to risk vulnerability? I know some of you have some big things to overcome and you need to do this wisely, but like some of you sabotage relationships because you're not willing to let people in and let people get close enough. Some of you are four, five, six, seven years in a marriage and you're lonely. So is your spouse. And it might be because you're not risking vulnerability. If you're the person that's at the bottom, at the bottom of the of the of the seesaw and you have all the control, it's even more important for you to become vulnerable so that you invite that sort of vulnerability from your partner and the person you're in relationship with. Here's why this is so extraordinary. Do you know that the reason that has the potential to heal in our relationships is because this is what Jesus did to heal our relationship with him. Jesus came And he said, I see who you really are. I see what's going on with you. I see all your faults and your failures. And I still want to be close to you. In fact, I want so bad to be close to you that I'm going to give of myself fully to forge an intimate relationship with you. It's in the security of that relationship, if we'll lean into it, that we find the ability to risk vulnerability the vulnerability necessary to keep from being alone. From the very beginning, when God created man, he said, it's not good for the man to be alone. And so whether you're single and you need to risk this vulnerability appropriately in a relationship or or maybe just among friends, like this is the same thing's true in, in community and in relationships. These are the types of relationships we're supposed to have with each other in the church that I'm willing to be fully known and I, I'm open to being uh, vulnerable with people knowing that I'll be met with this acceptance. This is so powerful and we've seen it go wrong, but this is a powerful thing that draws people toward the body of Christ because it's the model of Christ. And it's also the thing that's supposed, the marriage is supposed to be a reflection of is the relationship between Christ and his church where he made himself vulnerable, sacrificed himself, gave of himself fully, risking the fact that someone might reject his sacrifice, but hoping that it would lead them because of his full acceptance to a relationship to forge something new that could be intimate with their creator. Let me pray for you. God, I pray today for somebody who's here and this terrifies them. It terrifies them because they know there's something in their life that they're ashamed of or, and it, maybe it's, it's really difficult. It's something they did years ago or something that was done to them years ago that, that causes them to believe something about themselves. It's shaped and formed their identity about themselves in such a way that 
they felt like they have to remain in hiding and they're covering it up from relationship to relationship with friends and and in dating relationships, maybe in their marriage. God, I pray today that they would understand the power of the gospel message that says that you know this about them and still you love them and you accept them and you wanna be close to them. God, I pray it's from the strength of that security and that relationship that you would free them to choose vulnerability and forge greater intimacy in their relationships, that they could be known and accepted and experience the type of relationship that you designed for them so that they wouldn't have to go through life feeling alone. That's not your desire for any one of us. And so I just pray that people today would have the wisdom to know what to do with what we talked about and have the courage to take the next best step. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Once again, thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more messages like this, we've made it super easy. First, you can hit the subscribe button to get these messages on your device every week. Second, you can download our app from iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your apps. Or third, you can check out our YouTube channel. Just search for Buckhead Church and make sure to subscribe. Have a great day.